and welcome to the Flowerpot podcast from the National Botanic Garden of Wales. My name's Bruce Langridge and today my guest is Carly Green. Hello Carly. Hi Bruce. Now I've known Carly because she's been at the Botanic Garden for much longer than I thought. How long is it you've been here for Carly? Uh, in total seven years. Crikey. Although two of that was my apprenticeship. Oh, and we'll be talking about that in a minute. And Carly is one of our uh, horticulturalists, and she has particular uh, responsibility for what we are calling the native plants of Wales. And we're going to go and talk about that terminology, I think, later on as well, aren't yeah, we? Yeah, yeah. But basically the plants which are grown naturally in Wales and have been growing naturally here for thousands of years. And um, plants that we're trying to help conserve Mm-hmm. and we have display beds about but we'll go into all that in a little bit but I think there's lots of interesting things it's a, a particular passion of mine is uh, Welsh native wildflowers so I think we've got lots of talks about today Carly just start by going back to when did you first get interested in plants I've always been interested in nature I grew up in a small village and I went you're Northamptonshire is that right it is yeah, yeah, yeah. Midlands so I started I did a zoology degree starting in 2012 now because I thought, oh, I I love the natural world, I love science, but I don't want to mess around with humans or plants or, like, cellular stuff. I just wanted to look at animals because I love animals. And then two years into that degree, we had a module on plant communities and sort of it just... blew my brains wide open and I I realised that actually plants are so interesting and also you you don't have to track them like you do with animals once you find them you can pop a little GPS pin in it and next year you can go back and they'll still be there so I love that about plants as someone who's rather short-sighted when you're trying to look at a yeah. bird and they keep shooting off and you can't yeah, see them we, a we, plant stays there we had a module about tracking scat for otters and I thought ah. Oh, yeah. oh, Plant, you don't have to smell anyone's poo to smell plants. So. <laughs> Although some of our plants do smell a little bit iffy. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but maybe we can, t- yeah, 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 we'll come back to that one as well. <laughs> so um, so you finished your degree. Yes. And you thought, okay, how, how do I make a living out of plants? Is that right? Or is that? Or did you think like that? So I, I already knew, I didn't know this place was here the whole time I was studying at Swansea. Um, and I went, I'd seen an episode of a David Attenborough documentary, I think it was Kingdom of Plants or something like that, in which Carlos Magdalena, who's a sort of legendary rare plant propagator at Kew Gardens, um, was being interviewed by David about a plant he'd saved from extinction. And I thought, that that's what I want to do. I want to work oh. in a botanic garden, but there's no botanic gardens around here. So I went and spoke to my tutor, Rory Wilson, and he actually was the one who said, oh, did you know, half half an hour <laughs> down the a- M4, A48, there's a botanic garden, and they're actually about to set up their first ever apprenticeship programme. And that it just followed on from there. I just kept emailing saying, when are you setting up the apprenticeship? I'm interested in applying. And yeah, got onto it. I was the first one, <laughs> the guinea pig. And that was in 2000 and... 2015. And is that with the Patrick Daniel Foundation? Yes, yeah. And we'll be talking to Patrick Daniel in a podcast later yeah, in the year yeah, fantastic about man. the apprenticeship scheme he yeah. helped set up here. And who was the curator at the time? The curator was Simon Goodenough. 
Okay, so you got interviewed by Simon, and obviously you were offered the apprenticeship. Were you the only apprenticeship that year? I was, yeah. <laughs> was it a bit daunting coming here? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I don't even think I'd... I'd worked sort of in waitressing or the odd job here and there, but I'd never really worked in a sort of full-time work environment. And then I remember in my first week... My le- I spent the last three years in a library, basically. So in my first week, I remember by the end, I could barely lift my feet in the steel toe <laughs> boots. They were so heavy. Wow. And uh, I was like, the physical challenge was maybe the hardest, but also one of my favorite parts of when I really first started here. It was, I could literally feel myself getting stronger and stronger, but I was still getting to do science. So that was quite good. That's fantastic. So you, your apprenticeship was over two years, wasn't it? Yeah. And through that, you, you worked all different departments mm, around the yeah. horticulture? Yes. Is there any bit that you enjoyed most at the time or hated? or? <laughs> <laughs> I, did, I didn't hate any of it. I loved working on the Broadwalk with Daryl, who's now retired, yeah. um, because she has the most, she has the most incredible work ethic. So I... I really kind of enjoyed that challenge of being out in the howling wind and rain and you've got your waterproofs on and you're still working through it. That's that's quite a good memory I have of realising that I could be quite tough. <laughs> but the, the real kind of career moment I noticed was when I worked in the nursery glass houses with the horticulturist who was working there at the time was James Beavis, who left quite a while ago yeah remember James. and uh, yeah and just re propagation and i do still love uh controlled environments so like tropical and mediterranean propagation although it's not what i'm doing now i just had this moment where i was like oh this is so interesting and so fun and that was where the kind of seed of i'm a propagator at heart that's what i love to do yeah. so so from that you kind of finishing up as your apprenticeship was coming to an end mm. did you think well what do I do next how how, do, how come you're still here Carly because you have been a bit of a success story but how, how did that happen I don't I don't remember the exact situation I don't remember exactly how it came about but they they were they were advertising for for my job I I think it might have I don't remember exactly the situation, but just a few months before my apprenticeship was set to end, they advertised for a propagator. So this would be someone to look after. Part of it would be doing propagation for the Boulder Garden, and then part of it was to look after the Conserving Welsh Plants collection, which is which had been sort of the horticulturist who had previously looked after that collection had been... Um, gone for about a year or that was Anne Maloney yes that was Anne Um, and she left during my first year of the apprenticeship and then it had sort of been kept just ticking along by apprentices at that point so the job was half boulder garden propagator and half looking after this this collection yeah I remember you starting because I remember there were were a few sort of uh, volunteers helped out and I was a uh, man called Tony Ivans who did a lot of work in Mm. there I used to know Tony because through fungi uh, relationships so uh, that was great uh, you coming on board with that Carly but I got I kind of remember you going to California as well was that around the same time um that was about a year later that was in 2018 okay (laughs) well you you you, you kind of went off um, hired a van Went around yes. California and you yeah. came back 
and you you kind of gave tours here, uh, talks here about what you'd seen. It just looked amazing, and you'd obviously yeah. So that that was a bursary trip that was funded by the RHS and the Merlin Trust. What did that do for you? Did it? <laughs> I mean, tw- tw- personally, 2018 was a big year for me, um, and that just kind of added to this this great year of sort of maturing really um but professionally it was just it was it was just an opportunity to see i mean i was going and visiting botanic gardens in california and um these were gardens that were doing what i do here which is conserving native plants but obviously in california although it doesn't feel like it in this polytunnel um it's very different conditions over there so they we have to deal with things like sheep and overgrazing, um, agriculture, um, rain levels, frosts. But in California, they were dealing with fires um, yeah. and having enough water. So, so it was really interesting to see how they adapted to doing the same job, but in a totally different climate. Not only did you go to California, but uh, um, I know you also did some work at Highgrove. Did you go, did you do some other work in different places during the yeah, apprenticeship? Yeah, so Highgrove was part of my apprenticeship. So it's slightly different now, but when I did my apprenticeship, I think I had three weeks a year of placement um, where I could go to different gardens to see how, to see how other places work, because every garden you work at is different. Um, and those were like you could if you could chart my learning on a graph you'd see huge spikes every time I went on placement because you <laughs> learn so much so I went to Highgrove I also worked at a private garden uh, in Wales and then I did three during my first year of my apprenticeship I did actually get to do three weeks at Kew in the oh, yeah. tropical propagation glass houses and I got to meet Carlos Magdalena as Did well. you? Yeah, yeah. So when I was a really sort of baby horticulturist, I I was yeah, that was really exciting Did you tell him you'd seen him on the telly? <laughs> I don't think I did. I think I'd read his book as well and I didn't tell him I'd read it. <laughs> uh, I reckon he would have liked that, wouldn't he? Maybe, maybe. But um yeah, that was really really amazing place, Q. I mean, obviously. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I always think it's great that people go and see other places. It's mm. really, uh, it's very easy to be, stay in your own little bubble. Yeah. But once you go anywhere else, you always learn something. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that's wonderful. So you you had a, probably a massive steep learning curve. Yeah, yeah. But then you're given the responsibility of looking after primarily the native plant collection. So did, did you ask to look after them or was it given to you? No, that was included in the the job description of my first job coming out of the apprenticeship it was 50% propagation for the boulder garden and 50% welsh native plants but it no one else quite knew what to do with them at the time so yeah. they were just like here look after this area and uh, yeah cuz I'd worked on them with Anne Maloney at the very start and indeed James mm. and uh, Carl as well worked on them here. Yeah. And uh, cuz I did all the interpretation for them. So these that these are these are specific sort of rectangular beds yes. which are uh, represent plants from mainly from different nature reserve, national nature reserves around Wales. So there was Coo Midwell, there was Kenvig Burrows yeah. and Great Orm. And we had one for our own wine lass. And latterly, we have had one from uh, Welsh Pool. Yeah. 
the Brighton Hill. So that that was the very first project that I took on. I was we received seed for that, and I was working on that even before I completely finished my apprenticeship. So, and these, um, you know, for me, who's a little bit who loves his wildflowers, and has sort of happily sort of hung over cliff edges trying to get oh, a good yeah. photograph looking <laughs> at things and although I'm not a big hiker no. I, I love the fact that as a not someone who likes to walk up mountains I have Coo Midwell brought down to me <laughs> and uh, all these amazing plants which mm. are kind of hovering on the kind of edge of potential extinction in Wales because of climate change because they're all living near the tops of mountains yeah. to have them here just and see them flourishing here you know plants which are considered to be extraordinarily rare like the snowden uh hawkweed for instance yes i mean yeah. there's, there's all in it how many of them in the wild are there three or something oh i i don't know <laughs> off the top of my head but they are they are very they're so rare that you occasionally i've seen them pop up i've seen the name pop up twice in tv shows and movies because apparently when these uh, script writers google extremely rare plant um snowdonia hawkweed pops up so it's quite i think there's mention of it in a terrible movie called the last witch hunter really awful I haven't seen that it's, yeah, it's I... got vin diesel in it but yeah, they mention it in there, and they say, "Oh, Snowdonia hawkweed," and then take a, fir- a fern down <laughs> and go, "Oh, look, rare plant." No, they use a fern. Yeah, yes, I oh, think it's right. a Divalia, a tropical fern. Oh, <laughs> great, um, but there's a Netflix series as well. Wasn't yeah, there? yeah, I, I, I never saw that one, but I think it was some sort of Sherlock type thing. But we had right. people coming in, and it was mentioned in the paper of Snowdonia hawkweed, and they used the wrong photo and so yeah that's how rare it is (laughs) (laughs) but you know what you know even if they get it wrong uh, interesting wildflowers like this i absolutely love it i love the fact that we've had these sort of plants here as well and you've got to grow some of the rarest plants in wales you know as a propagator i haven't got a clue what how you do what you do (laughs) Uh, but you've had to learn different techniques presumably to uh, to grow all the different plants. And by the way, for anyone listening, we seem to have someone on a, on a I don't know, is some, uh, yeah, some I think vehicle it's the, outside. Uh, the Avant, the forklift going past. <laughs> so I apologise for that. But anyway, so tell me about how you've had to learn to propagate all these different plants. Well, I I'm still learning. Yeah. <laughs> I, I still very much consider myself quite a newbie at, at um, the propagation side, especially when it's something so rare that no one else has grown it before it's you kind of feel like you're the blind leading the blind sometimes um so it's mainly sort of looking things up online reading papers asking other people either my colleagues here who have been doing this longer than me or reaching out to other botanic gardens where other people have been growing this stuff and just i mean that's how it works for botanic gardens that's the value of botanic gardens being as this sort of huge community is there's always someone that knows a little bit more about something than you and you can always kind of just ask people or get access to papers there's a lot of experimenting so yeah it's just you're the thing i like about horticulture and botany is that you never really stop learning ever no, I love that as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love that. And even things you've learnt, you forget, and then you have to yeah, relearn them again. That's, them. <laughs> that's great. And the challenge of growing Arctic alpines is presumably very different from the, the Kenwick Burrows bed, which is 
sand dunes. Yes. So yeah, so with Arctic Alpines, I've not grown a great deal of those from seeds, but they do tend to kind of like to sit for a very long time. They obviously need their cooling periods. And then the Kenvig Burrow stuff, some of that is very specialist and needs fungal partners, for example. So yeah. we just collected... Last year, we collected seed from the June gentian, which is gentianella amarella. And when we collected that seed, we also had to bring a trowel in a bucket and get a bucket of sand from the place it was growing to then grow the plants in that sand in the hopes that it would have the right fungal um, partners in there. So it's very different, very different, depending on what plant you've got. Well, I remember when we, when those beds were being developed, um, say, Amelone was running the project at the time and she mm. said oh Bruce you want to come down to Kenby Burrows there's a fubas going down because they're turning over all the turf there yeah. because they're trying to they're trying to encourage more sand blow there for the sort of rare beetles and so on that, that, that live in that so I remember going down and it almost felt uh, as a conservation it felt almost like oh, yeah. you're digging up these 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 big turfs yeah, of, of, yeah. of what looked like amazing wildflowers and I mean, it just felt such a privilege to actually be in that position. And I remember helping them lug. I mean, I'm not a very good physical guy. And I remember, I remember how heavy these turves were. And mm. I thought, oh my God, they're really, really heavy. But what I've loved about seeing them, because they, they were put into the beds. And then the things that sort of emerged from them. I know yeah. one of the rare uh, horsetail, the variegated horsetail, oh, which yeah. came out. I mean, we didn't see it on the day, and I remember it suddenly appeared one year, and that was really weird. <laughs> and and then several years later, the pyramid orchids appeared. Yeah, yeah. And and now we've got broom rapes in there as well, and they all must have come from this this turf. It's it's really really interesting. And you're, and you're right, it must be the fungi in there and all the microbes and all that. Well, when we so the the sand that fills the Kenvig bed is sand from Kenvig. So over the generations of plants that have grown there, the it's not just sand it's got millions probably billions of seeds still in it so even even now what is it i don't know when those beds were built probably 2012 yeah so over 10 years later if you disturb an area of sand in the kenvig bed something still could pop up that you've never seen growing in there before and it's from that original seed bank it's that's it's one of the most interesting beds to work on in the compounds. Um, yeah, as someone who works here, I love those beds. I'm always bobbing down to have a little look. Yeah. And uh, you showed me something today that I, I hadn't noticed because you made a little hedgerow there. Mm. And I hadn't noticed the bee orchid that had appeared yeah, in the yeah. little hedgerow. And I've been walking past. I feel embarrassed I hadn't seen it. <laughs> uh, and uh, what I think what's really interesting in part of the jobs that you do is that you collected bee orchid seed, didn't you, from a... a Bee orchids only appeared here about seven or eight years ago. They appeared naturally mm. down by our Clink and Old Lake. And uh, they, they flowered one year, then the next year they flowered somewhere else. And then you collected some seeds from there. And on your walk back to the horty yeah. block, there must have been some seed that popped out because they'd then bee orchids appeared along the route that you walked back. Yeah, yeah. Which yes. I think is amazing. Yeah, yeah, that was about two years ago i i just did a little walk from it popped up right down by by the bull yeah um and then i put it in an envelope and walked all the way up to the science block which is a 
heck of a walk. Yeah. And then since then, we've had the odd beetle kid <laughs> pop up along the route. Uh, I think it must be, you know, if you were doing a crime novel, you know, and you were like a, a, a botanical sleuth, like Cadfile or something, <laughs> to be able to walk, discover Following the route, route that Carly yeah. took back to the uh, science <laughs> plot. <laughs> it's really, really funny. But I, I, I think it's one of the reasons we love the wildflowers, isn't it? And, and apart from that as well, you've also I'd noticed that in the other bed, one of the other beds as well, which is from the Great Orm, you did a lot of sort of lots of weird tweaking around with the uh, the Welsh Cotoniaster, didn't you? I've yeah. So this is what I mean about experimenting with propagating these things. So Welsh Welsh Cotoniaster, Cotoniaster cambricus is kind of one of the main plants that I do a lot of work with because it, it is so endangered and there's this um I'm part of this Wales wide collaboration with other botanic gardens and organizations to try and just help it because it, when we first started there were only six plants left in the wild and it's endemic so that's the world the world population is six <laughs> so since then it's very reluctant to be propagated from it doesn't come from cuttings it's not very keen on germinating mm. and it, it doesn't really like m- most of our normal propagation methods so i remember one year i tried my partner does bonsai and he told me about this crazy... They do all sorts of mad stuff to trees in bonsai. He told me about this grafting method where you drill a hole through a branch, you thread the branch you want to graft on through that hole, and then you sort of seal it up and let that branch expand as it grows, and then it, it will fill that hole and eventually graft through, and then you can snip snip the branch off, and you've got the branch exactly where you want it on your bonsai tree. And I thought, ha, oh, that sounds sounds interesting. So I tried that one year. It didn't take. I don't know whether that was because that was my first attempt at that graft or just because the Catoniaster was like, nah, that's too mad, I'm not doing that. But then this year I've I had one in the nursery in a pot that naturally layered itself, which is when a branch touches the soil gets a bit of damage and then produces a root and then eventually you can detach that branch from the main plant and you have an extra plant so i'm currently trying that i've been doing i've had these branches i wounded just on the bottom of the branch very lightly and then weighed them down and pinned them to soil with a rock and i left them cotoniaster does things very very slowly so i've left them for about two years now and i'm gonna see if they've developed any roots soon so fingers crossed for me <laughs> but from me uh, looking over the it's definitely grown a lot in the in the, in the plot yeah, that we've yeah. got here as well and something i love about cotoniaster cambricus mm. is the i know our scientists here they did the dna barcode to make sure yeah that it was not a garden escape yes it was a genuine yeah. unique species and Native they, plant. They, they they nailed that one and then the the conversations which then went around which suggested because it's on kind of a steep cliff face at the great orm it may well have survived through the last ice age yeah so it might have been not only what we often consider native species to be since the last ice age it's before then so it's probably the by far the oldest plant 
in Wales, it's the most established, longest plant in Wales. Amazing. Perhaps, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's funny talking about native plants because you kind of have to decide, well, when? Because Britain used to be just, co- like you said, covered in a sheet of ice. So everything you see when you walk out your door, except for maybe a sort of Arctic willow or something, everything you see came over here as a colonising plant. So, um, so yeah, with, with stuff like that, I mean, I think about this stuff every day, so I go into a lot more detail on it than most people. Most people, you know, it's quite normal to just say, oh, that's native, that's not native, and it's quite clear-cut. But when I'm doing this day in, day out, and learning these stories about these plants, it I just I just end up throwing my hands up and being like, well, what does that word even mean? Like, most of nothing in Britain is truly native. It used to be completely barren. Everything's come over, so you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Apart from the little coastal strips, isn't it, where mm. the ice ice uh, didn't quite make it down to. Yeah. Well, generally, most of where we certainly where we sat today it was completely covered in ice. Yeah. And, and this is a. It's, I think it's worth us talking about this now because um, two weeks ago we had an event here, which was a conversation between an artist called Tina Pesotra and a grower called Claire Ratinon, mm. and they were just talking about uh, different sort of issues to do with art and, and life and growing. Uh, Claire said that she felt uncomfortable with the terminology mm. of native, and, and and then we had that discussion about well. Is that native for people who are not uh, who are non-white? Yeah, you know, and the, yeah. Because uh, Claire, Claire, and Tina are both women of color. Yeah, and I, I think both of their families came over to this country as immigrants. And that terminology of native makes them can make them feel excluded mm. still. And that I think as conservationists, we will largely use terminology like non-native invasive species yeah. it sounds terrible alien yeah alien well i i was involved in this in the 1990s and where we used to use the word alien a lot yeah and even then we thought oh that's that's not 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 right and somehow or other the convention became to using native yeah but that's still not quite right and i think we have a challenge to find the right terminology yeah which makes everyone feel included and i think it's quite contextual as well so native non-native in within conservation and science have very defined meanings and they are about plants and they are about the date which we know this plant has been in this country since so we have three categories we have native which is plants that we can either identify in the fossil record or um, in pollen cores from peat bogs that we know have been in this country for thousands and thousands of years and predate humans basically We have things, archaeophytes, that are often things like agricultural weeds that were brought over, quite a lot of them by the Romans. Like poppies and corn Corn cockles and alexanders. Yeah, horse chestnut. Um, And then we also have neophytes, which we know came into the country post the discovery of the New World. So that's the kind of scientific... Actually, even that's interesting to discover the new work from our point of view. Isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's yeah. Right. yeah, yeah. So it, it's we talk about things purely as plants, whether they've been brought by human hands or whether they were here naturally. But then when you're talking about science communication, which is a thing that I'm quite passionate about, and making feel people feel included and talking about native in terms of 
kind of when you're trying to talk to large groups of people and make them feel like, ah, oh, like engage with the natural world, engage with plant conservation. It's not just in exotic jungles, it's here as well. When you're talking to people and trying to make people feel included in the conversation, which is terms of nature and engaging with nature is a conversation that people of colour have often been excluded from. Yeah. I mean, just look at any episode of gardening TV or media, it tends to be predominantly white. So it's it's realising that, oh, so, some people who don't have that experience can say, oh, I've, I've heard very similar words said to me as a human that you are using as a plant. And it, it's just... I don't think it's ever going to be resolved. I don't know. You know, for some people, it's like, you're just talking about plants and why are you getting up in arms about plants? And that's totally fair. But it, it is when you're trying to make people feel, feel engaged with the natural world, it's just something to consider, depending on the group of people you're talking to. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've come across this in the conservation world. I've, I've been doing this business for quite a long time. And I remember mm. there was a really absurd... A horrible sort of thing. I remember I used to live in Sheffield, and there was someone took over the management of some woodland, mm. and uh, had a lot of sycamore in it. And sycamore mm. is a bit of a neophyte, so it's been around mm. <clears throat> in Britain for four, five hundred years. And some people, it's almost like eco-fascism. They don't want to accept anything that yes. wasn't here just after the glaciers. And then there was this uh, the person who managed this wood. They removed all the sycamore. Yeah. Now sycamore, I used to play uh, when I was a kid. I used to climb trees, and a sycamore tree was my favourite tree. Mm. Brilliant for climbing, you can get good footholds <laughs> and all sorts. And uh, so you take, you took out all these sycamores as this almost purification, this wood, and ruined the bloody thing. And yeah, they, all, all these, well, just it was awful. A thing, a thing. I spoke to Claire when she, after she and Tina had had this conversation, and she had a very interesting idea that was, why are we describing things based on? where they're from why don't we describe their behaviors so for sycamore i would describe sycamore and say that um, sycamore is a plant that is invasive in many woodlands it outcompetes our native maple and it it lowers the overall biodiversity of that area but that has nothing to do with where it's from bracken does the same thing and bracken is completely native um, and has been here for we would we would classify it as native, but I think the trap that we can fall into sometimes in horticulture, as we're getting more of this awareness and more of this enthusiasm for wildlife and making our gardens more of a haven for wildlife and promoting biodiversity, is we fall into a bit of tr a trap that I have fallen into in the past that is native good, non-native bad, mm. which isn't always the case. Mm. Um, so I, I remember hearing this story about this meadow somewhere in England, and every year this meadow was absolutely covered in spring with crocuses, and it was beautiful, and all of the people from the neighbouring town would come and look at these crocuses. Maybe they didn't really care much about na nature, but they came and they saw the crocuses and maybe picked a few and it was beautiful. And then they needed to apply for funding to protect this meadow because it was actually also a very diverse grassland. Um, and originally the funding, the, the people who they were applying to said, if you want conservation funding, you have to remove every non-native species. 
So oh, essentially, wow. they they were saying that you need crocus is not a native species. You need to remove it to protect this meadow. But the whole reason people wanted to protect this meadow and the whole reason they cared about it was the crocus. And the crocus wasn't lowering the biodiversity of the field because after that initial flush of flowers, when nothing else is particularly in flower there, it has these tiny strap-like leaves that don't shade out anything else and then it dies. Well, it doesn't die, but it it goes dormant. Yeah. Um, And eventually they did win the funding without having to remove the crocuses. But that's the sort of thing I'm talking about where we we fall into the trap of native good, not native bad. And then for people that have come from backgrounds that aren't, you know, my experience that aren't white, that haven't, you know, don't have family records of Northamptonshire for <laughs> hundreds of years, no one's moved. They they can see that kind of talk and it can make them very uncomfortable because they're like, how long does it, how far does that style of thinking go of native good, non-native bad? So I think I think it's, it's very nuanced and um, don't think it always applies to the science, but it definitely applies to how you speak to people about plants. Sometimes. Yeah, it's a really interesting conservation challenge, though, and particularly as we're getting climate change, and you know things probably aren't going to go back to how they were in no. 1732, whatever. No. And and we just, yeah, you know, certainly uh, the way we manage a lot of our wildlife national lectures, we just kind of we create the conditions and then see what happens. Yes. We cre- so we kind of let nature do what nature wants yeah. to do. So, but this this is a continuing conversation, and I, th- I think as a botanic garden, we we should be trying to create ways to uh, keep this conversation going. Yeah, I think. yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't think I'm ever going to fully know what you know. I this is quite new to me. I had this. I first had a conversation with Tina Pesotra about two years ago, and uh, since then I've just been sort of chewing it up in my mind ever since. And. I find it so interesting because I am really interested in these sort of social issues and it breaks my heart that some, like, I take so much joy from nature and it breaks my heart that some people feel excluded from that. So it's why I really care about this stuff when other people might not, which is fine. But yeah, I, I don't think I'll ever have an answer for this question. I don't think anyone will, but it's just about listening to points of view of people that have experiences that you could never understand. I have no idea what it's like to experience racism at all. Um, So it's listening to what those people are saying and then thinking, okay, is is that relevant? And if it is, what do I do about it? Yeah. Okay, we'll we'll come back to this another day, I think. At the moment, our Conserving Welsh Plants display is really hard to get to. And we know that most people really struggle to find. Mm. So it's going to be taken down to the Wallace Garden. Yes. And uh, you've got in front of me here, obviously I, I have to try and describe it, but you've got like a, a beautifully drawn up plan of how it's going to look in the double helixed uh, laid out pathways yeah, of yeah. our Wallace Garden. Could you just give me a little bit of a brief overview about how you're going to be laying out the collections down there? Yeah, we? yeah. So our Wallace Garden, it's named after Alfred Russell Wallace, who um, came up with the theory of evolution alongside Darwin. And he was he's kind of a Welsh icon of science. Um, and the layout of the Wallace Garden is already amazing. It's the paths that run through it are set out in a double helix, like DNA. Um, so we're we're keeping that design because I I I'm such a nerd. I love it. But what we're doing is each of those beds will now be representing a different Welsh habitat. 
so the idea is when you first come in you're given what people most people think of as like valuable native welsh habitats ancient so you've got celtic rainforest which is this ancient woodland with ferns growing up trees and moss um you've got things like heathland with your heather and your gorse you've got yeah arctic alpines these really sort of ancient uh habitats that people think of as pristine but then as you move further up the Wallace Garden, you see other habitats that are more human. So you see wetlands that need a great deal of human management to stay diverse. And then you also start to see things like post-industrial habitats, so coal spoil heaps. So not many people know this, but coal spoil heaps and brownfield sites and polluted land actually are some of the best places in this country to find really rare plants because the pollutants and the heavy metals in the soil kind of kill off the sort of brambles and nettles and grasses that would normally colonise an area of bare earth and outcompete rare plants. So you get some fascinating little things that grow on these these post-industrial And can I also sites. add, Carly, because uh, there's also fungi on those as well. Ah, uh, yes. And, and we had a previous podcast with Emma Williams, who's actually been doing loads yeah, of yeah. amazing research and cold spoil fungi yeah yeah emma's emma's fantastic you're not going to try and put hey do you think you can get some fungi on here i mean we can always try so so the aim is to get substrate so the soil from each site so like we mentioned before with kenvig bed where the sand has the seed bank it could also potentially have um the mycelium in it and the spores from fungi so there's always a chance if you're taking um, donor soil from a site that it could have fungal spores in it. Okay, which well, we'll I look, look forward to. I like that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, this is a massive job. So yes. how how's it been paid for? So this this is this project is thanks to a donation we received from Castle Howell, um, and it's really enabled us to just kind of this this drawing is sort of i've been working with the welsh natives compound for quite a few years now and it's it's always seemed a little bit forgotten and drab and sort of pushed around the side so this is sort of my wildest dreams my christmas list <laughs> um and it's enabled us to really kind of think big with this and think about how to make it really engaging really exciting and and show people you may see these really rare plants in the great glass house or in the tropical house but also look at we, what we have in Wales. So, yeah, it's quite exciting. And uh, have you got a timetable for this? Looks like a big job. Yes, yes. So uh, so we're currently coming towards the end of the design stage, which will end in August, and then construction is going to be taking place over the autumn, winter, spring, um, up until 2023, and then all through 2023 and 2024, I will be busily planting it up. Okay, so we like being back on the boardwalk again in the yeah, rain yeah. when you were working with Daryl years yeah. ago. Well, thank you, Carly. That's fascinating. Thank you, yeah. So really, I think by oh, ne- next summer... Knock on wood. Knock on wood. <laughs> people can come and sort of see the new displays in the yeah, Boys Garden. Yeah. And uh, will you be writing about it? Will you do a blog or something, maybe? I'm sure I will. I That'd do, be great. I you, do, do blogs You do do again. blogs. <laughs> yes, that's right. Thank you very much, Carly. Thank you, Bruce. 